Pastor Lani is not here today, so it's my privilege to share God's word with you. Let's pray. Of course, the kids can be dismissed as well. Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this time, Lord. Lord, thank you that we could come into your house, Father, Lord, as, as one body, as brothers and sisters, dear Lord, people who have been saved, have been redeemed by your precious blood, oh, Father, that we could come, Lord, and sing your praises, Lord, and acknowledge you in our lives, Father. Thank you for all the wonderful things that you've done for us, your goodness, Lord, your grace, your protection, the provision in our lives, Father. Lord, thank you for your word that guides us, that shows us the way to walk, oh, Father. Thank you for not giving up on us. Lord, we pray that, Lord, that you would be here this morning as we open your word and meditate, dear Lord. We pray that, Lord, your Holy Spirit, Lord, would minister to us according to our needs. You alone know our hearts. Lord, you know the deepest desires, Lord, our failures, the needs of our hearts, dear Lord. You know everything, dear Lord. We pray that, Lord, you will be with us, dear Lord, that you would speak to us this morning. Give me your grace as well, dear Lord, as I share. We love you. We give you glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Now, being a Christian <clears throat> is both an exciting and a challenging experience. Now, we live in a culture that looks down upon religion. Anybody who takes religion seriously is ridiculed, opens himself or herself to, to public scorn as well. People say, like, we all have our beliefs, but we don't want to know what you believe. We don't want to know how your religion affects your behavior. All right? Try to live like us. Do what we do, talk like the rest of us. In other words, Keep your religion in your living room. That's the system that we live in. And sadly, many Christians don't want to be called Christians anymore. They prefer the word spiritual. It's more fashionable to say, I'm spiritual, not a Christian. The word spiritual is more inclusive. You're not dogmatic in any way. You're not close-minded to say that this is the only way. It's welcoming as long as you're spiritual, as long as you believe something uh, seriously, then it's good. As long as it works for you, it's well and good. So being a Christian comes with the baggage. Hence the confusion. What should my Christian life look like? Romans 12 gives us the blueprint of a Christian life for living. I am a believer, I am a Christian, what next? How should my life reflect my belief system? Paul is writing to the body of believers to encourage and to challenge them, to live a life, to keep a standard. He sets the benchmark. If you go home and read chapter 12, you will see that there, the mark of a Christian the lifestyle of a Christian, it's all laid out one by one. I just want to focus on one verse today, Romans 12, chapter 11. Romans 12, chapter 11, 
It says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, what does the term zealous Christian mean? Slothful in zeal. Now, we don't use those words. It's not part of our, our daily conversation. It's not part of our vocabulary. It's little archaic, little formal, little literal. Right? You find this in literary writings. The word zealous. So I was looking into some synonyms. What does this word zealous mean? I found a few synonyms. Ablaze, aflame, red hot, amped up, going nuts. We don't use these words when we talk about our religion, our religious beliefs of being a Christian. Ablaze, aflame, red hot, amped up, going nuts. It's a powerful word. Zeal is a powerful word. It's a strong desire. It's a burning passion that consumes it day in and day out. It's not a wishy-washy, take-it-or-leave-it attitude. So I was also reminded of another catchphrase that captures the, the spirit, the essence of the younger generation. I work with the younger generation, so I hear this a lot, what we call Gen Z, whatever. You know. But with more attitude, you know. <laughs> it's a combination of coldness, apathy, dismissive, all rolled into one. The shrug of the shoulder, the wave of the hand, the rolling of the eyes, the rolling of the tongue, they all work in perfect harmony to give the power of this word, whatever. Now, being zealous is the opposite of whatever. Being slothful, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. This another word, fervent, that is also a little old English, little archaic, little more formal. Fervent in spirit. And I was looking into that word as well. And this is what I found. Very similar. Right? Zealous and fervent. But the word uh, in, in Greek, in original Greek, the verb has this concept of a pot full of bubbling water over a flame. A pot full of bubbling water over a flame. It's a pot of boiling water, bubbling. It's active, it's roiling, it's giving off steam, heat. That's what fervent means. This morning, we're going to do a temperature check of our Christian living. I know it's cold outside. I was hoping, you know, spring is already here. But somehow winter is fighting back. Maybe a couple more weeks. How is our temperature on the inside? Is it boiling? Is it going nuts? Red hot. J.C. Royal talks about this, and then he puts it beautifully. A zealous man is preeminently a man of one thing. He sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. A single-mindedness. 
whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. That's what the word zealous means, zealous Christian. So a zealous Christian has an undivided heart with a singular focus and a unified purpose, just one thing. It seeks to please God, do His will, and work for His glory. Now, this is a problem because we live in an age of distractions, whether you like it or not. We do live in an age of distractions. There are so many things crying for our attention, especially our phones, our cell phones, our smartphones. There's a study that says on average, people spend about four hours, four to five hours every day on their mobile phones. Just imagine that. Four hours of our day is spent on our smartphones. People check their phones 144 times a day. Numbers are staggering. 144 times a day we are on our phones. 89% of Americans say they check their phones within the first 10 minutes of waking up. Sometimes the first thing you do is to check your phone. I do that. Is the last thing to do before you go to, go to bed as well. 75% of the people feel uneasy leaving their phones at home. And I love this better. 75% of them use their phone on the toilet. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Right? We live in an age of distractions. There's also research, uh, recent studies that's being made about the YouTube shots and the Facebook reels and the addictive nature of them. It offers endless variety, diverse entertainment. Never stops, keeps going, scrolling and scrolling. It's 30 seconds, just even sometimes just a minute. Cries for our attention. But most of what we consume comes from the secular culture, a culture that reasons truth. It's anti-Christian, it's messaging. Sometimes it's deliberate. Sometimes it's subtle. Or sometimes it's complete garbage from the eternity standpoint. And therefore the question, how can we have this singular mind? How can we have this undivided heart when we are bombarded with these distractions? An undivided heart, a singular focus, and unified purpose, one thing and one thing alone. One who please God, obey his word, and do his will. And what happens is we find ourselves many a time living this whatever Christianity. Just don't have the energy for that anymore. Just want to point you uh, two characters from the Bible who were zealous for God. Now, this being zealous for God is not something unnatural. We see this in church history. We see this in missionaries' lives, their biographies, 
the burning desire they had to give up their everything they had. We hear stories of people's sacrifice and what they do for God. We see that in the Bible as well, the heroes of our faith. I just want to draw attention to two of them this morning, very briefly. The first one is David, the life of David. We all know who David was, a shepherd boy. Before he became a king, he was out in the fields, minding his own little flock. He had seven brothers. He's the last, he's the youngest of all. Nobody cared about David. Nobody thought much about David. His own dad didn't think much of him. And three of his brothers, much older, much stronger, they served in King Saul's army. And one day David's dad said, why don't you go check on your brothers? So he packs him a snack bag and sent him on his way. The purpose of David's journey is to go see whether how his brothers are doing. And David goes and then happens to see this battle unfold. We know the story, the story of Goliath, a towering personality, a giant, a nine feet tall, huge, strong, and he used to come out every day and defy the armies of Israel and God. And it says people scattered in front of him. Every time he came out, people ran before him. Nobody had the guts to stand up. And this is when David comes. And he sees what this Goliath was doing. He hears what he says. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26, this is what David says. This is how he responds. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Look at that question. This, the second part. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who do you think, uh, who does he think he is to come out and talk against God, to defy his name? The God of hosts. That's the zeal David had. He didn't care for Goliath's size. He doesn't even care of his name, right? We don't have his name listed there. He just calls him this uncircumcised Philistine. Who does he think he is? To talk trash. It was a burning desire in David's heart. Put me in the ring. I'll show him what God can do. There were much stronger men in King Saul's armies, physically strong. King Saul himself was a strong man, he's a warrior. He has killed his thousands. But David had this burning question. Who is this guy who can defy the armies of the living God? I want to see the, the, that zeal that David had for the name of the Lord. Brought him into the ring with Goliath. One-on-one -on -one with Goliath. I want you to imagine when David took on Goliath, there is no coming back. There is no plan B. There is no plan B. 
He was putting his life on the line. And we know what God did. He turned his life around. And he became a blessing to Israel. And he continued with the zeal throughout his life. You can see his, how he lived his life. Psalm 69 verse 9 says, For zeal of your house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. One after the other, you can see David acting based on the zeal for, that he had for God. The other one is Nehemiah. He's also in the, the Old Testament. Who is Nehemiah? He was the cupbearer for a king. Nothing goes to the king's hands. His drink, he, he decides what the king drinks. The king trusted Nehemiah with his life. Right, if you read in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, this is what he says. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And look at this response, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I moaned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah had a dream job. He was living the dream. Living in the presence of the king. Eating at his table maybe. Associating himself with all the dignitaries who, who frequented the king. A power, a powerful position, a prestigious position, probably, probably the envy of the others. But his heart was with his people. All right? And his fervor, his zeal, saw the restoration of Israel. One man's prayer, and God used him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Not just the physical walls, but also the spiritual life as well. If you go home and read the life of Nehemiah, what he does, he moans, he fasts, and he prays. The question this morning for us is, what would it look like if all the Christians began to be zealous for God? How might that impact not only your life, but our families, our cities, our neighborhoods? If every one of us is truly living out their lives, their Christian life, with this great zeal, with a passion, how will our society look like? It will take us out of our comfort zone. It will dare us to take risks. That's what we see in the life of St. Paul. You know, Paul uh, calls himself he could have used a lot of names, uh, the way he describes himself, but three or four times he uses this phrase to refer to himself. And we see that in Ephesians chapter uh, 3, verse 1. It's the label that he gives for himself, right? Paul calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ. What an attractive name that is. Who is Paul? The prisoner of Jesus Christ. 
That's the label he is most proud of. Maybe he was playing with that, with that word there. He was writing this from the prison. But more importantly, he says, I'm a prisoner for Christ. I don't do anything of my own. The life that I'm living, I don't live for my own, for my own self, for my pleasure. I live to do his will, to do his command, to live for his glory, for his kingdom. I'm a prisoner. We are all prisoners. We are prisoners to so many things in life. And Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Paul found his freedom by being a prisoner for Christ. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 19. The kind of risk that he takes because of the zeal that he had for his, for his Lord. Acts chapter 20, verse 19. Look at his ministry experience. He says, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. And in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. My life is worth nothing to me. That's the zeal that he had. My only aim, my only aim in life is to finish the race and complete the task that he has given me, that he has entrusted in my hands. I want to be faithful. It doesn't have, matter what happens to me. My personal welfare, my security, none of that matters anymore. The choices I make in life, the decisions I take, how I spend my time, my energy, my, my talents, my resources, everything revolves around my personal comfort. What works for me? I just want God to bless me, bless me more. Help me to live in comfort, if not in style. That's my prayer, usually. But Paul says, I don't care about my life. The only thing I have in mind is to finish the race and complete the task that God has given me. Whatever Christianity, they don't, they don't know anything about submitting to his will. No knowledge about putting yourself to death. Crucifying your flesh. To give up control. To entrust your life into the hands of God. To truly say, not my will, Lord, but let yours be done. Bend me, break me, mold me, make me pliable. I want to be useful in your hands. Instead, we resist, we hesitate, we're reluctant, we give excuses. 
We are content in half measures. Our priorities are all messed up. No time for God, no energy for personal devotion, no heart for ministry of any sort. Just relaxing. Most of our days are spent relaxing. We just desire this relaxation, restfulness, the sleepy version of the adulterated Christianity. Just need to wake up. May the Holy Spirit wake us up before it is too late. It is war zone, whether you realize, realize this or not. We are living in a war zone. We need to see the eyes of destruction around us. Just like Nehemiah had the eyes to see the walls of Jerusalem in ruins. The walls are broken down. The gates have been set on fire. The people are mourning and in great trouble. Where are the tears? Where are the Nehemiahs who can mourn and weep? Who can fast and pray? Who can sacrifice? Who can take risk? Who has this fervent in spirit? We have no time to waste, brothers and sisters. The enemy is working against us. He is working over time to distract us, to destroy your potential. The enemy doesn't want you to be purposeful in following Christ or being fruitful. It is difficult, it is hard. The noises are getting louder and louder every day. The boundaries are getting blurred. There's an all-out attack on the child of God, on his church, on his kingdom. If you're not careful, we'll be sucked into the currents of this world. It is war out there, but the enemy wants us to relax. Just don't have the energy for God. Look at what Jesus says in John 4.34. John 4.34, Jesus says, My food is to do my Father's will, and to finish his work. That's the singular vision he had. Nothing else is going to satisfy me. My food is to do my father's will and to finish his work. It's the love he had for his father, the deep relationship he had with his own dad, heavenly father. And that's what motivated him to go alone Again and again, we see that in the Bible. He withdrew himself, sometimes into the wilderness, sometimes to the mountain, and he spent time in prayer, sometimes whole night in prayer. Sometimes he used to wake up early in the morning and go and pray. Now, this gives us a clue. It is love that drives us in our godly pursuits. We don't do things for the sake of doing. Love is the motivation for the zeal. Because there is a wrong kind of zeal as well. I come from India. India is predominantly a Hindu country. And I've seen people very, very, very uh, zealous for their God. Doing some unbelievable things. I have seen people hanging from these huge chariots. Suspended just by metal hooks. Their entire body is suspended by metal hooks. And they just go for this painful ride. I've seen people run through fire and have burn injuries, can't walk for weeks. 
I've seen people climb hills, thousand and one steps on their knees. There's also this wrongful zeal. Zeal motivated by selfishness. I do this because I want something in life. Or could be because of pride. My group is better than yours. I'll work to prove a point. Romans chapter 12, sorry, chapter 10, verse 1 to 2, talks about this wrongful zeal. Paul talks about this, you know, referring to his own brothers, the Jewish uh, brothers. Romans chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, it says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They just don't know the truth. They don't know who God is, but they have some kind of a zeal for God. A hypocritical, a pharisaical religion. They think they can work, will their way to righteousness. Work their way to God. Zeal in itself cannot save you. The number of times you pray, the number of times you fast, the charity works that you do, though they are good things, they cannot save us. If, you are, if your boast is only in your religiosity, religious works, it's good for nothing. Because we know that even our good deeds are tainted by our sinful motives. The good deeds are tainted by our sinful motives. Thoughts of pride, selfish ambitions behind those things, boastful attitudes. The list goes on. We are more wretched than we can imagine. If we can be brave enough to take a look at our hearts. People are ignorant about this righteousness. Salvation is a gift of God. We don't work our way for this. If you can see the wretchedness, how wretched you are, how helpless you are, how sinful you are, just like me. We need a savior. We need somebody to come alongside to save us from drowning. And if you can see how much God loves you and what Jesus has done for you on the cross, see him as your savior and your king. Now confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. God gives you his gift of salvation. A new heart, a new desire, a new passion, a new zeal for his holiness, for his righteousness, for his kingdom. That's the gift of God. The work of his Holy Spirit in, in a believer's life. The old life is gone. And there is a newness of God that comes into a believer's life. So this God kind of a zeal is motivated by love, punctuated by humility, and marked with sacrifice. It's completely different from the worldly kind of zeal. Motivated by love. It's, it's punctuated by humility and marked with sacrifice. We cannot will this into our life. Now, how can we get this zeal? Only God can produce these fruits in the people's lives. His enabling grace that is at work in my life and yours. As we keep asking, 
It is God, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. He alone can light the fire in our hearts, kindle our spirit, and to keep it going, he does the job. But we also have a responsibility not to douse the fire, not to quench the spirit, not to let the weeds grow. Because this action, the action of ours, can weaken the flame and its effect on our lives. It can lose its intensity to affect our behavior. Our heart can grow cold for spiritual things, dull our appetites for spiritual things, can weaken our, our fight against our flesh. That's why it's so careful. I mean, we've got to be careful to keep the fire going. Now, zealous Christians keep his or her gaze fixed upon the cross. That is the source of our Christian living, right? Christian identity. The cross, it all comes back, comes back to that. The love of God displayed on that tree, the rugged tree. It's a beautiful hymn. Most of you must know this, the, uh, this, the hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. When I survey the wondrous cross. That's how we were saved. And that's how we have to live our Christian life as well. We cannot take our eyes off of the cross. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It is the cross of Christ, the love of God that was displayed on the cross that demands my life. So love is the motivation for the zeal, the zeal to live for God, for his kingdom, for his glory. It comes from the cross. So if you find your heart cold this morning, have very little zeal for God, got to go to the cross. Let's keep looking at it, keeping our gaze fixed on the cross, on the love of God displayed for us till God gives us the zeal for your own soul. Zeal for the glory of God and zeal for his kingdom. Because there is no passive Christianity. There is nothing like passive Christianity. Christian on the bleacher syndrome. You know, just, we just go to the games, we don't do anything, we're not in the field, we just sit on the bleachers and then watch them play. Sometimes we can be on our phones getting distracted. My son complains to me all the time. We're not watching, we're on your phone. There is nothing like that. Sometimes it feels like we are the walking dead, just sleepwalking our way in our religious living, our Christian living. The way of the cross demands a whole lot more. It demands our life. It is not an option. Being zealous for God is not an option. It is essential for the very survival of our Christian life. There's a couple of things that I want to point out. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. First Corinthians 16, 22. Paul says, 
if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Look at that phrase again. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now, it doesn't say if anyone doesn't commit their life to cross, to Jesus, let him be accursed. He doesn't say if anyone doesn't believe on the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed, even though they are all true. If you don't believe in Jesus, your eternity is in danger. Be in the lake of fire for eternity. In that sense, you are accursed. But then he, it says, if anyone has no love for the Lord. Now, how are we supposed to love the Lord? We know the greatest commandment that Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The challenging word here is the word all. Do you love God with all your heart? All your soul, all your mind, all your strength. There is no room for half measures here. He doesn't settle for just a little here and there. There is no room for being lukewarm. You know, Revelation 3.16, Jesus says, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's a dangerous thing to find ourselves cold in our hearts. Zeal matters to God. Zealous Christians matters to God. No appearance of holiness. Total surrender is what he expects from us. Now, when we talk about zeal, having zeal or being zealous Christian, a zealous Christian will always strive for personal holiness. It starts there. Before we can do, try anything for God. It's a desire for personal holiness. Hebrews 12, 14. Without holiness, no one, no one will see the Lord. Now, to be holy means to set apart, to be separated. That's what he did, right? When he called us, when he saved us, he separated us from the world. To live a life that is different from the world. To have different values, to have different goals, different passions. in this world, but not of this world. When the world is debating about different theories and philosoph philosophical traditions, and they are doubting their very ability to know things, God has called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. He has revealed the mystery of his will, that we can call him our Abba Father, that we can go to his throne, boldly go to his throne, throne of grace and may receive mercy and grace in time of help and need. We know where to go. We know who is our heavenly father. We have a heavenly calling, brothers and sisters, to be holy. Now, we cannot stumble into holiness and holy living. It's dying to the self. It's crucifying your flesh every moment, every decision, carrying your cross intentionally, Striving to follow Christ till the rest of your life. No room for slacking. No room for laziness. Zeal for holiness. Do you know your weaknesses? Areas in your spiritual life where you feel vulnerable. What have you done about them? 
Have you set guardrails to keep you from stumbling? Have you set boundaries for yourself, for your flesh, whatever that is? Are you intentional about your personal sanctification? We can't sleepwalk our way to holiness. It has to be intentional. It's so easy to fall. Paul, once again, 1 Corinthians 9, 24, 27. Powerful, powerful words. This is what he says. Do you not know that in a race that all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And then verse 27, he says this. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Look at what he does to his own self, how he fights his life, the kind of zeal he has for his holiness. I strike a blow to my body. My body refuses to cooperate, cooperate with my spirit. My flesh, it's a war against my flesh. I want to make it my slave. It's a fight. It's intentional. This is a challenge. You've got to take it seriously. Wilbur Rees has a humorous book. It's a very old book uh, called $3 Worth of God. All right? Um, this is what he says. It's an interesting kind of humorous quote. He says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. We don't think too much about what we buy for $3. It's worth nothing to us. It doesn't mean much. You don't lose sleep over it. It's just like a, like a bottle of spice that you pick up in the grocery store, thinking like I do that all the time. Oh, this sounds interesting. Some curious combination might come handy one of these days when I cook my chicken, add a little spice, just throw it in the spice rack. Just a couple of dollars. I have a rack full of spices. <laughs> we don't think much about what we buy for two or three dollars. Sometimes we just, that's how we treat God and our religion and our Christianity. We don't want God to trouble us, to shake us up, to change our life, to challenge us. Just want a little. Have it in the shelf. Might come in handy one of these days. <clears throat> zealous for good works. We cannot be zealous and also be self-absorbed at the same time. C.T. Studd was a British missionary. You must have heard of him, of his name. Born with a silver spoon. Born into a powerful, powerful home, a family. Rich, connected. Graduated from Cambridge, successful career. Everything was waiting for him to go out and make his mark. But he chose to be a missionary. 
He worked with Hudson Taylor, went to China, Africa, India, sacrificed, gave up everything. And then he wrote a beautiful poem. Found it very, very interesting. He says, two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, it will soon be passed. A few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life, it will soon be passed. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, sorry, give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. It will soon be passed. Do not be slothful in zeal, meaning it is possible to be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. It is possible to grow cold rather than blow hot for him. Pot of boiling water on fire, bubbling. And serve the Lord. Now this morning, I want to ask you a couple of questions before we close. Can you ask God to set your heart on fire? Set it ablaze, Lord. Enough of fooling around. Neither hot nor cold kind of spirit. Not committing fully. Sitting on the sidelines. Watching your heart grow cold. Dabbling with the world. With my flesh. Being enmity with the world. A life given for comfort and sensuousness. Enough of wavering. Enough of this double-mindedness. Ask God to set your heart on fire. Ask God for a new zeal towards personal holiness. Got to wake up from our spiritual slumber. The enemy is waging a war against your soul. Pray that God will give you a watchful spirit so that we could keep our eyes fixed on him on the cross. Pray that God will give you a kingdom-minded vision for your life. Do you have a calling in life? Do you know what's your calling in life? Every believer here will have a calling. If not, can you ask God to show you what he wants you to do with your life? How can you be a channel of blessing? With what he has given us, how can you be a blessing? Show God's love and use that to share his good news, to share his love and be a witness for him.
May God ignite us with a passion for the word, the word of God, a passion for God. Just like Nehemiah. Just pray for our families, our neighborhood, our country, passion for the nations, a kingdom-minded vision. Now we pray, right? Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Let it be part of our vision, our passion too. If you know what God has called you to, have you been faithful in responding to this call? Because it is easy to get discouraged. It's easy for our flesh, or let our flesh say that we have done enough. You have put in the work. Let others do it. Let me sit in the bleacher for for some time. Enjoy the show. Ask God to open up your heart to sacrifice. Just got to do it only with the power of the Spirit to obey this call. Our weak words, our feeble efforts, may God bless those things so that we can be a blessing and useful in thy kingdom. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, dear Lord. We need your touch. Lord, touch us, O Father. We pray for your your spirit, Lord, to set us on fire. Let our hearts, Lord, burn bright for you. Forgive us, Lord, for quenching the spirit, for not being careful, Lord, to keep the fire going, for wasting our lives, dear Lord, for compromising with the world, for not obeying your voice. Have mercy upon us, dear Lord. Give us a new passion, dear Lord, for you, a new zeal to live for you, for your kingdom, for our holiness, dear Lord, to please you in everything, to do your will, work for your kingdom, for your glory. Lord, work in us, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you on the cross and never take our eyes off the cross, dear Lord, to walk in humility, in love, and bring glory and honor to your name. We love you, Lord. Take us and use us for your glory. We pray for our families. Lord, use us for your glory, dear Lord. Use us as your witness, O Father, as your instrument, Lord. Help us to pray, to fast, Lord, to to be purposeful in what we do so that, Lord, we will win souls for you, dear Lord. We pray for our communities. We pray for our church, dear Lord, the churches across this country, dear Lord. Lord, we pray for your, your power, Lord. Set us ablaze. Help us to burn bright for you, to blow hot for you, dear Lord. Give us your grace and mercy, dear Lord. We love you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.